And next to another developing story, U.S. commandos deep inside Syria taking out a senior ISIS leader. Tonight, ABC's Terry Moran with details on that raid and what American forces found that could unlock secrets about this terrorist group. The daring raid happened overnight. Elite Delta Force troops taking off from Iraq aboard Black Hawk helicopters and V-22 Ospreys headed deep into Syria. Their mission, capture and interrogate Abu Sayyaf, a key ISIS leader, according to U.S. intelligence, the top money man in charge of ISIS's multi-million dollar black market oil and gas sales. This is not just another person. Their revenue streams are extremely important for their survival. A counterterrorism official tells ABC News Sayyaf is also suspected to be the ISIS leader who had been given American hostage Kayla Mueller, killed in Syria in February as a forced bride or slave. On the ground at Sayef's house, a fierce firefight. ISIS fighters defending the building, using women and children as human shields, the Pentagon says. Delta Force commandos pushing forward. At times, the combat was so close, it was hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Abu Sayef killed in the firefight, along with a dozen ISIS fighters. Sayef's wife captured and held for questioning. All American personnel returned safely after scooping up laptop computers that could prove to be an intelligence windfall. All in all, a significant success. It should have a large psychological impact on ISIS that we can go ahead and do raids anywhere we want and take out the episode for you guys with my guest being Fred Fusco, a former special missions operator and someone who I've had on a podcast before. But before we get into the episode, I want to talk to you about my friends at Echo Defense Group, and you may remember them as I've done a podcast with them before. Echo Defense Group has a unique capability and they train African Rangers and they are the front lines of fighting the rhino wars in Africa. Kay Foy is a bladesmith, and she hand forged and handcrafted an incredible knife to support the work of special operators as they train wildlife rangers on the front lines of the rhino war. She gathered materials unique to Africa, including spent brass from the range, and combined those with woolly mammoth teeth. Working in partnership with Echo Defense Group, Kay is bridging the gap of their secret work to ensure these vets can do what they do best in a unique place. I've never seen anything quite like it. So if you are a knife collector who wants to support U.S. Special Mission Unit veterans and protect the rhino in Africa, go get a blade now. You can visit her website at www.kayfoy.com. That's K-A-Y-F-O-Y-E.com. And the, the blade is the African Wildlife Knife. The proceeds from the sales of this blade will go directly to Echo Defense Group, which in turn goes directly to supporting African Rangers fighting the rhino wars in Africa. Check it out. You can also check out her Instagram at kfoy. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special episode for you guys. My guest for this week's podcast 
has been on previously. His name is Fred Fusco. He served for a number of years in the United States Army uh, in special operations, including at the highest level uh, at the Special Mission Unit. Uh, and he does some really incredible things post-military service. Uh, so we're honored to have Fred back. Fred, It's going well, man. How you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, can't complain. Uh, it seems like the winners fighting to stay alive, but other than that, things are good, man. Um, it's been a few years since you've been on the podcast. Uh, I forget exactly when you were on. Yeah, what was that, like 2017 or something Yes, like the summer of 2017. And then, as I recall, we both, after we recorded, we both went on vacation, like immediately. <laughs> I'm glad you remember. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. You might have been the first operator I've had on the podcast. Um, and if you aren't the first, then you're definitely one of the first. Um, Hell yeah, man. I'm fucking honored. That's awesome. First, yeah, first yeah. in. I like it. Yeah. Um, it's been a while since you were on, so... Um, could you walk us through your career in the Army a little bit, um, you know, sort of step? Okay. Yeah, so in 1992, I was working in the restaurant business. I was a sous chef, and I had gone through culinary school, and I had been working in restaurants for <clears throat> a few years, and um, I kind of realized it wasn't for me. I was really stressed out. I was a young man, 19 years old. I was working every holiday week, working every weekend. Uh, I had no social life, you know, cause in the restaurant business, you pretty much off Mondays and that's it. And it was just really stressful. A lot of the chefs I worked under the executive chefs were all alcoholics, overweight, high blood pressure, all that. Yeah. So I was like, you know what? This ain't my thing. Uh, took me a little while to figure out, but I did. And, you know, I'd watched some movies growing up like John Wayne, you know, the Green Berets, mm. a few others, and figured, you know what, I'd like to try that. I'd like to be a Green Beret. So I went to the Army recruiter back home and I walked in and I asked them, hey, I want to be a Green Beret. How do I do that? And they kind of gave me the spiel, well, you can't do that right away. Cause, and that was the truth at that time back then. You had to already be prior service serving for a little while before you could apply. <clears throat> so I was like, all right, what else can I do? And we went through some jobs. I was looking at jobs with the minimal amount of enlistment time. So I could, you know, if I didn't like it, I could get out. So I took a two-year enlistment as a Stinger missile uh, crew member. So I was in air defense, basically worked with infantry units, providing them air support or uh, coverage from air attack. So air defense coverage. So basically just running around with a anti-aircraft missile on your back? Yeah. Yep, pretty much a Stinger missile, 36-pound weight that sat on top of my already very heavy rucksack and uh, worked in two-man teams and watched over infantry platoons, made sure that, you know, helicopters didn't mess them up or whatever. But, I mean, it was peacetime. It was back in the 90s. We never actually... Right, right. We just trained for it, so... And where were you stationed at that point? Uh, I was in Korea for a little bit, then Fort Bliss, Texas, and then I went to the 101st at Fort. Okay. Yep. 
Um, didn't really love that job, to be honest. I, I worked with some people that were, you know, it was much like the rest of the conventional military, very, you know, I don't know, people didn't really want to be there. And, you know, the leadership was, was kind of horrible. So I was like, all right, it's time for me to look into other things. Um, around that time I got picked up for recruiting detail. So I had to go do my time as a recruiter for three years. So army recruiter, um, during that time, I started doing some research and reading, I guess, a couple of books and magazines. And I heard about the unit and I was like, wow, this sounds really cool. You know, I saw the Chuck Norris Delta Force movie as a kid growing up. And I was like, I'd like to try that. And I did. I went in uh, 1999. I tried my first attempt in West Virginia at selection and I did not make it. Uh, it was a failure to meet the time standard in an event. I ended up getting really sick, uh, had a really bad case of pneumonia after a couple of days. So I, you know, I got sent home, sent back to my old job before exiting or before my leaving that selection course, I sat down with at the time, major Scott Miller, who's in charge of selection and training. He told me that I should go to an SF team, an ODA, go through the Q course and get some experience and come back and try again. So I did that. <sighs> I went and applied for SFAS. The, like the very next one, I think it was probably six months later. And uh, I went and I made it. I was selected in, uh, to become a Green Beret as an 18 Delta uh, Special Forces Medical Sergeant. The Special Forces Selection Course is quite long, as I understand it, uh, with all the different uh, specialty training, language training, culture training. Uh, but if I can recall correctly, I think the 18 Delta Special Forces Medic is the longest uh, version of that. Yeah, yeah. So just the the MOS phase of it, where you actually learn your occupational specialty, your job. Like, you know, there's a weapons one, a weapons sergeant, a medical sergeant, an engineer sergeant, and a communication sergeant. And I was a medical, which is the longest one. Because there's a lot of um, a lot of academics, you know, anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, you know, trauma training. There's paramedic certification, which by that by itself takes several months. So it's a pretty long pipeline for the for the 18 deltas, as they're called. <clears throat> so that medical course is where all of the different uh, branches send their special operations medics to get trained up. Yeah, actually, that was that was the case at that time. It's it's changed a little since then. That was like uh, okay, a little over twenty years ago. A couple, I think that was two thousand. So, um, yeah, we had Navy SEAL medics. We had Force Recon corpsmen who were actually Navy medics assigned to Force Recon. We had Air Force pararescue trainees. Um, ranger medics we had that and that was the first part of my my training was the special operations combat medic course that's the first half of the medical part six months long and then the second portion is called the special forces medical sergeants course which is another six months long but during that first part Sockham um, was when I was working with all those different guys from different places 
Uh, things have changed since then. Like I know the PGA started their own power rescue training uh, program at Kirtland Air Force Base, and I'm not sure. I know Ranger medics, I think, still go through it, and there's probably a few others, but uh, I know some of that's changed. Yeah. Um, went through that. That was a long process. I was the first time going everything, luckily. Uh, and, you know, went through uh, unconventional warfare phase, which is like at the end, you know, ends with Robin Sage and doing your little guerrilla warfare exercises out here at Fort Bragg. And then you go, you get your green, back then you got your green beret, your tab, and then you went to SEER and then language, which was another... The seer was only a few weeks, but language was like for me six months long. So it's like a three-year pipeline. Also, wow. uh, yeah, it's pretty long. Um, then went to get assignment to go to Fifth Special Forces Group, which I kind of already knew that was before I got assigned my language. Uh, when I when I graduated and got my green beret, they were like, "Hey, you're going to Fifth Group." It's like sweet, and uh, that was sarcasm. It wasn't sweet. Um, that's not, that wasn't my first choice. It was like my third choice, but, um, went through that, went to fifth group and then the G Watt kicked off, um, for, uh, for, for Iraq. I'm sorry. That was Iraq, not the G Watt. That was the beginning of the Iraq invasion. Okay. So sorry about that. Were you going through the medical course when nine 11 happened? Yeah, I was in my medical sergeant's course when 9-11 happened. I think I was in endocrinology, actually. Mm. Right. And do you remember, do you remember like, what, like, what you were doing when you found out? Yeah, we were sitting in a class listening to a lecture on endocrinology. Um, then, I don't know, somebody came in from ops and was like, hey, guys, um, you know, they kind of gave us an update. Hey, a plane just crashed into the World Trade Center, and then they put on... The slideshow went away. The PowerPoint we were looking at, they put on, um, you know, some news network. I don't know. It's probably like CNN or something like that. And they, they kind of shared. And then we started watching that. Uh, meanwhile, they were spinning us up. Uh, actually, even though we were students, they were spinning us up to go uh, pack our bags and go to the, to, the, to the crash site and try to provide, you know, aid and uh, recovery and rescue assistance. Uh, Mayor Giuliani actually a few days later told us uh, just hang tight, don't don't worry about it because they had it, they had enough volunteers. But uh, yeah, and we just continue, we continue with our training. But yeah, I was in there in the medical sergeant course and almost done, not quite, but almost. <clears throat> so by the time you had completed the course, had Iraq already kicked off? Uh, so I went to fifth group. It was before Iraq had kicked off. You know, I did all my in processing and all that. And, you know, there was talks of us going into that country as well as I think it was like three countries they were looking at going into. Um, it was like Iraq, Syria and Iran or something like that. I don't remember exactly. It was a lot of different, you know, rumors going around back then. But anyways, it, it became Iraq, you know, George Bush said, Hey, we're going to go, go to Iraq and look for weapons of mass destruction and do whatever we had to, whatever had to be done there. So we started packing our bags. We got to go, you know, we loaded aircraft, 
flew over to Kuwait, and that was kind of our staging area. We were in isolation, started our mission planning and all that for events leading up to the initial invasion. So you were involved in the initial push in Iraq? Uh, yes. Yep. Was this particular deployment the first time that you got into a gunfight? Uh, yeah, it wasn't, and it wasn't right away. Um, the area we went to, like my ODA, we were in Eastern Iraq, Al Qut, and really we were just there to, when it was all said and done, we were there to set up, take Iraqis that had capitulated, Iraqi military guys or volunteers, anybody really, men that were of military age and kind of stand them up as a, like a security force. That's mm. where that, and I think we talked about it last time, the FIF, the free Iraq fighters. So we kind of were standing those guys up, training them, equipping them and getting them ready to take over after the initial, you know, take down of Saddam Hussein's regime. So you guys were basically working that classic special forces mission you're training up a local force and getting yep. them ready to fight. Yep. Yeah. And we did get in a few gunfights little here and there throughout the city. Uh, and they were just, I don't even really know, man. Honestly, it was like, you still had some, some Iraqis that were, you know, you know, fighting for the cause. They were kind of in pockets throughout the city, but that area was predominantly Shia that, that part I was in. So that was okay. one of the first cities that was like pro American, pro us being there, and all the right. all the because oh, they 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 Saddam. What's that? You know, they were pro American, but probably more than anything, they hated Saddam. They and oh yeah, yeah he they did not like that guy, and that's that's the reasoning for them, you know, helping us out and kind of taking charge of their their area and putting together a a security force to help stabilize the the area. Yeah, it was kind of a weird time. Uh, honestly most so most of the most of the injuries that I treated during that initial uh phase of the deployment was <laughs> honestly burns and ex like you know small blast wound uh, injuries for kids playing with UXOs they would find, you know, they'd find RPGs or grenades and stuff that the Iraqi military, after they hauled ass, they'd leave stuff behind and kids would find it and play with it and they'd like, you know, they'd detonate or, you know, wow. get burned real bad. So I treated a lot of kids with burns. Yeah, it was pretty, uh, it was interesting. Not what you would have thought, you know. Right. So if I have my timeline correct, the insurgency hadn't started yet, right? Right. Yeah, that was, oh shit, that was probably a year before. So that was, you know, 2003. The, the AMZ slash AQIZ phase didn't really start perking up till 04, which was our second rotation. Um, you know. They, I, you know, you kind of followed it on the news um, before Abu Mazab Zarqawi, what anybody knew who he was, he was the, the head of the Al Qaeda cell of Iraq. So <clears throat> those guys were 
you know, making moves on Americans and trying to get us to get out of there. They were starting to build IEDs. That's when IEDs started showing up because we were rolling around in thin-skinned vehicles, you know, no big deal, no helmets on, whatever, <laughs> and ball caps. And, uh, and then the ID, IED thing started happening. That was like 2004, like the early spring. I think there's a demographic of Americans or people around the world who are interested in this type of thing, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, but just sort of looking at it peripherally, assume that uh, you guys are over there fighting farmers and like local Iraqis who just wanted to defend their home. Uh, but the reality was much more complicated than that, uh, with there being thousands of foreign fighters who flowed into Iraq from other nations just so they can go fight Americans. Um, you have that plus the civil war that was taking place between the Sunni and Shia sects of Islam, uh, with the Sunnis being backed by Saudi Arabia and to some extent the Syrians, and then the, the Shias being backed by the Iranians. All of these factors created a much more complex battlefield than the casual observers uh, would give credit to and understand. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, yeah, Syria definitely had some low-key involvement, um, you know, especially for the Saddam, you know, they're all Ba'athists, so they right. supported each other. Um, so, yeah, you had a lot of, like you mentioned, man, the foreign fighters kind of sneaking in just to kind of, you know, get their jihad on and try to kill some Americans. It was, it was a, it was an interesting time in that country because you don't know who the hell you were fighting, who the bad guys were some days, you know what I mean? You had pro American Iraqis that were all for democracy. You had the, the kind of a little more reserved conservative, hardcore Iraqis that more su supported the old Saddam regime. You had foreign fighters coming in there from different places. It was a mess, man. It was a mess, but it was a target rich environment. So <laughs> depending on how you right. look at it, it was good or it was bad. So what, what, um, how was that first deployment? The first one was pretty, it wasn't too bad, man. It was, you know, it was my first SF deployment and we were doing really the, the traditional SF role, right? Uh, foreign internal defense, um, kind of helping, uh, you know, guerrilla warfare, what do you want, whatever you want to call it. And we did some like real no shit Green Beret work. Uh, no injuries, no, no casualties to my team, to my ODA. You know, it was pretty uneventful for the most part. Like I said, there were some small skirmishes around the city, nothing crazy. I think I worked on more, more Iraqis than anything else. Like uh, one night there was a gunfight that we kind of went to. Um, and some guys got, we, we went to the hospital now, Coop, and I kind of walked into the ER and there's kind of patients everywhere. Some of them were bad guys that they brought in. Some of them were, you know, the security forces that brought in. So I was like working on all kinds of folks in there and it was, it was a lot, it was busy. Um, got a lot of good training, I guess, real world training. So it was, it was, it was a good trip. So in the scenarios where you were uh, treating kids who were suffering from blast injuries, whether that's a grenade or an unexploded bomb on the side of the road, um, 
were they being brought into you guys? Did you have like a clinic or like a casualty collection point? Um, you know, how was that working uh, logistically uh, for you as, as far yeah. as treating patients? Yeah, so we had a, we occupied a, an abandoned uh, Iraqi military post in the city. And it was kind of fenced in military compound. There was barracks there and everything. And we kind of occupied those. We took our FIF guys with us. We had a 155 FIF uh, force, 155 person. And how many Green Berets? Uh, that was my ODA. That was 12 of us. Plus, uh, plus like a couple of support guys. I think we had like a, a small psyops team of like three people. Uh, I think really that was it, but yeah, we were kind of on our own in the city, but like I said, it was a very permissive city for us. And, um, I had a clinic, so I would run sick call open to anybody, anybody that would walk up to the gate and kind of explain what the situation was. And like I said, it was mostly kids. So I had some old folks come in, some grandpas and guys with really rotten teeth that, <laughs> that had a lot of pain. Like I had a whole kind of, it was, it was a typical 18 Delta, like smorgasbord of, of, of sick call medicine, you know, or family care practice, if you will. But yeah, I did have a clinic. I built a clinic in one of our uh, buildings and um, yeah, I saw patients there like civilians as well as team internal stuff. That's awesome. So you finish your first trip and then you go back home, and then are you guys training up and, and going to different schools yep. and stuff? Yeah, so we had like a six-month uh, break in between the next deployment from that when we go back. So, you know, some leave and family time, some schools, some uh, gun uh, shooting training, you know, a shooting course or two, uh, team training, you know, working on those SOPs, you're always refining and then, yeah, right back into it six months later, this time in Fallujah. So you were with the same ODA, same group of guys on your second deployment? Uh, yeah, plus or minus um, a few guys. Yep, we you know we lost a couple that moved on to other stuff, and then we got some newer guys. Okay. <clears throat> so now for your second trip, you guys are probably more confident. You have more experience. Um. You went to Fallujah. I know at at a point Fallujah was very wild. Um, was it still bad at the time that you had gotten there? Yeah, we got there. The eighty second Airborne was kind of you know they were the the um, uh, battle space people for that for that area eighty second, and then they ripped out with First Mardiv, the Marine Division. And, um, you know, we were just the ODA. We stayed on a fob this time. We didn't live in the city, but that's, like I said, that was around the time they started <clears throat> building IEDs and start, started to hit Americans hard with that stuff. IED attacks. Um, they were kidnapping contractors. Remember the contractors that got burned up and hung off the bridge? Yeah. The Blackwater guys. Yeah, Blackwater. Uh, remember Nick Berg, remember he, uh, AMZ cut his head off on on camera right yeah. uh, was he a journalist what's that nick berg he was a journalist right yeah he was a I, that's what i believe he was a journalist yeah i don't remember for who but that so this was that time that was like early spring like i think march of 2004 and um yeah it was a completely different battle space for us this time it was insurgent you know insurgent dominated city 
Um, you had guys moving into positions of power for the um, Iraq Al Qaeda cell, if you will, and uh, what do they call it? Uh, AQI. AQI. AQIZ, yeah. right? And that's when, before people knew who AMZ was, that's when he became the, the head guy there and started making statements and, you know, beheading people and stuff like that. And our mission was more of a, uh, like a low vis kind of reduced signature human kind of running sources and collecting information and starting to build, uh, targets and, you know, handing those off to like more of a direct action, um, element to, to prosecute. So that was our thing, that trip, low vis. I know on a special forces team, uh, each guy has a, a specific role, and then the team would cross-train in the different roles just in case someone goes down, someone else can still perform that role. At a point for the infantry, for the Army and the Marine Corps, uh, non-medics were being taught basic bleeding control, or TCCC, uh, and uh, as a result of the rest of the platoon say learning this these life-saving procedures uh, they would then not have to rely on a on the single medic in the unit or just a medic and maybe someone else who had trained a bit uh, in that kind of role was everyone on your team doing chief TCCC by this point yeah when we did our pre-deployment training uh and, you know working on team SOPs and then we would cross train right every ODA is supposed to cross train so the medics, you know, we would take our team, we'd set up some scenarios and give them some classes and that kind of stuff and just give them the, like the basics, right? The cliff notes of anatomy and physiology and combat trauma management. And yeah, they were all very proficient in, you know, TCCC as, as it is now uh, tasks, you know, applying tourniquets and pressure bandages and, you know, stopping or, or creating stop gaps for major life threats. Uh, that kind of stuff. Were you guys calling it TCCC back then? No, nope, nope, not at all. We were just calling it uh, medical cross training. <laughs> there is no sexy name for it or acronym yet. <laughs> right. So you guys are doing low vis work, you know, reconnaissance stuff. Um, were you guys actually getting into fights or were you just doing reconnaissance? Was I actually what? Sorry. Were you guys actually fighting at this point? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, even though we're using indigenous vehicles, dressing like the locals and, you know, kind of working in a reduced signature capacity, yeah, we absolutely did. Because um, there was a couple times we did go out, you know, on the gr big green machine. Um, usually that's when you get hit, right? If you're going out in, like, Humvees or GMVs, uh, right. that, that's, that's the kind of stuff they target. Um, but I never, there was one incursion we had kind of low vis and it was only cause I thought I seen, I'm pretty sure to this day, I saw a dude in placing an IED and we ended up pulling over down the road. This was like right off the side of a highway, um, uh, between Fallujah and Ramadi. And we pulled over, we kind of, we called our, our hire, gave him a little sit rep you know, just a little update. Hey, we saw this. And then we, we were kind of observing from a distance and we saw some AKs being toted around by 
uh, this couple of individuals that were kind of looking shady. They, they were just, you know, they stand out, man. They were kind of in the right place at the wrong time type of thing. And uh, then they started, you know, they pick up guns. They're like, all right, so we got cover, man. And we took a couple rounds. And then we started maneuvering on them, you know, fire maneuver. They ended up breaking contact. They were able to get out of there. Uh, Cause they knew the terrain better than us. I think they got into some culvert or something. I don't, I don't remember all the details, but you know, we were not allowed to pursue cause there's literally only four of us and we didn't want to commit mm-hmm. to something that might've turned into something really ugly for us really quickly. But right, right. <clears throat> we went back and we kind of explained to the leadership, Hey, what we saw this and that. And that's kind of frowned upon when you're in that capacity, you know, to kind of overtly, <laughs> start acting on people um but hey man marines were getting fucking killed with ieds every day there sometimes a few times a day i thought i saw a dude putting in an ied i'm pretty sure I right did. right so you know we reacted accordingly and what what we thought was the right decision so nobody got in trouble it was just you know it was no big deal they're just saying hey, don't do that again <clears throat> So the leadership didn't want you guys doing things like that for the potential repercussions? Um, not really repercussions as much as just we didn't have the support that we might have needed, you know, like a, like a QRF or or infect fire or something like that or CAS. Uh, it was just we were just out there, man, OTF, right, out there flapping. And we were trying to maintain or we we're trying to, you know, reduce the signature and not have a heavy American footprint out there in the daytime especially with you know local vehicles and clothing and stuff like that kind of like blow your cover type thing you know i see <clears throat> so for this deployment was this when the push to take Fallujah took place like when the marines moved in yeah so on that deployment that was a six-month deployment for us we saw we saw the first mardiv guys surround Fallujah. i think it was twice they pushed into the city. Uh, I remember. I, I know the first time they surrounded the city and then they backed out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then they had another big, a big event after that, uh, shortly after that. But yeah, that was a, that was a rough time for those guys. They, they took a lot of casualties. You know, they were doing house to house stuff that both Ramadi and Fallujah back. Then. Right. So were you guys running with the Marines at any point, like going out together, hitting targets, uh, things like that? I did one with the 82nd uh, early on in that trip. And then with the Marines, we would go out on mounted uh, convoys and kind of, you know, one of those, I'm sure you heard about it. Like, hey, let's go on a 100-vehicle convoy and draw some fire and see what we can. <laughs> That's how they used to look. Yeah. Yes. You know, before find, fix, finish, exploit, that's how they used to create targets. <laughs> Drive at least the Marines did drive around and draw fire, and we did them a couple <laughs> times just to go out there because we, you know, we get bored sitting around the the team house and we're like, yeah, we'll go out with you guys, and uh, yeah, it was interesting. Got into some 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 fights, got in a few ambushes, uh, but like I said, I was lucky. I'm here today to talk about it, so. <laughs> So you brought up some interesting points there. Um, so what I'd yep. like to ask is, you know, when you think about uh, a special forces team or a special operations team uh, in a place like Iraq, you know, as as bad as it was uh, during that time, 
you know, ca- casual observer would think of oh, as nonstop fighting taking place. Um, but as you said, there's there's moments where there's lulls in fighting and essentially boredom kicks in. Um, can you explain some of the dynamic of that? Yeah, so we were doing a lot of human collection, a lot of meetings with sources and stuff like that. And that, that's not real sexy stuff. That's very tedious and it's time consuming. You're writing a lot of reports. So when I say sitting around the team house board, that's kind of what I meant. I mean, we weren't doing anything, twiddling our thumbs. We were doing stuff. <laughs> it just wasn't the stuff I like doing. You know what I'm saying? Right. So we were, we were busy, just not good busy. Just like, uh, yeah, I need to do something else. But, um, I don't know. It was, uh, that, that, mission set is probably not my favorite thing to do in the world, especially when you have to, you know, do all this collection and build these packets and interview these sources. You have multiple sources confirming, you know, a person, and then you turn it over to, for somebody else to go hit. That's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of not fun. You know, it's a little bit of a slap in the face, if you will. Right. Right. I, I get that. Um, so you mentioned the, uh, you know, the Marines are going out and drawing fire, basically, so they can figure out where the enemy is. Um, at a point, and I'm assuming it was after this, um, they built a bunch of cell phone towers all around Iraq, and then people started to talk on the phone. And that was really what was able to drive intelligence and, and begin a faster or, or higher pace of operations. Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't, so I was in, you know, SF, I was in fifth group. Um, there were other elements within, within the theater, IE, uh, JSOC units that were operating that were already doing the, the EW side. We weren't doing it yet. We had okay at my level at ODA. I was on, we had no knowledge or any of that. Um, so that was kind of new to me because that was, you know, shortly after that trip, I went to my next place and that's where I kind of started learning about that stuff. I knew of it. Like I, I went out and hit a, a target to go help SSE one night with, with some unit guys that were in Ramadi. They, they wanted some help. And, um, that was my first time working with, with where I ended up, the guys where I ended up. <clears throat> so I was familiar with you know, the phones and the selectors and that whole process, you know, the cell phone towers and, but we, we weren't doing it. Not at, not at our level. <clears throat> okay. So how long was this second deployment for you? Uh, that was a six month trip. They were first two okay. were both six months, if I remember correctly, which, yeah, they were six. Okay. So you guys leave Iraq, um, and did you take any casualties, any American casualties on this deployment? No. Um, the, overall on that trip, we we did have a really uh, interesting day on Easter. We had a we we didn't take any on our ODA. We had some Marine attachments that were riding on the back of our vehicles that had some frag, caught some frags, so they got some scratches on them. They got Purple Hearts, and then we lost a our Iraqi partner force, we had their leadership ride in one of those um, Land Rover defenders in the center of our convoy. They ended up getting mortared. It flipped on its side, and they took a lot of machine gun. We all did. Took some machine gun fire 
and I think the driver was killed. He had a, he lost a lot of blood. He had a femoral artery bleed and the passenger who was like an officer, um, he was wounded. He lived, but he was wounded. But as far as that whole trip, that's about all we saw for casualties. Okay. So you had already attempted uh, special mission selection, uh, didn't make it the first time, then you went back to special forces. Um, yep. Throughout that time period after yep. you didn't make it in, were you in your mind thinking, I'm going to go back, or did you say, I'm just going to stick to special forces? Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, that was kind of my ulterior motive, and a lot of people really didn't like that about me because – I didn't, that you wanted to leave. I didn't make it. I didn't keep it a secret that that was my goal was there. And yeah, I went back and tried again. But, you know, it's it's the army, man. It's the army culture when they have a good soldier. Not saying I was a good soldier, but, you, you know, you have a soldier and he wants to better himself and develop his career and go do other things to continue that, to strive to improve and get better. Some people don't like that. They don't want to lose that guy. So they become asked about right. it. And I kind of went through that a little bit. Luckily for me, I made it the second time. So <laughs> so that friction, uh, was that coming from the leadership or was that coming from your teammates? <clears throat> oh, most definitely it was leadership. Teammates were all about it, man. They're, you know, they're okay. kind of my best support for it. Some actually rucked with me to help me out, you know, training. Nice. Yeah. But yeah, definitely the leadership, man. I mean, I have an idea, but would you say... Uh, you know, that type of action um, is is not the kind of action you want to see from a leader in special forces. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like a good leader shouldn't be, you know, trying to keep keep his subordinates from from, you know, moving on or, or developing themselves. That I mean, that's part of leadership. One oh one is developing your subordinates and making them better so that they can become leaders and they can move on. Right. You know what I mean? But there's this thing in the, in the army anyways, in the culture, a lot of conventional units. And as I found out in special forces, or at least fifth group, that there's people that become bitter assholes when you want to go on and do other things. And like at, at the team level for me, my team sergeant was one of those. He knew I wanted to go there. Um, I found out later that he tried to go to a, a different or a higher level unit. Wasn't, wasn't the one I was at. It was another one. Um, and he did not make it. So hmm. you know, maybe he was bitter about that. I don't know. But he would talk some serious junk about the SMU I went to and those guys and how they work. And, like, he was a real shit talker. Hmm. Yeah. Wasn't very supportive, anyways, to say the least. I don't know if you remember, but on the first podcast, uh, I'd ask you a question about leadership and then you told a story about a time that a guy in a leadership role made a decision that led to a difficult yep. scenario for you guys on the battlefield. Are you talking about the same guy? Yeah. That, that is the same team sergeant that I was talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know, I know you knew who I was talking about, but, um, yeah, I thought maybe that was him, but I, you know, I just wanted to, to clarify. Um, so I don't remember exactly. He he made a call that that led you guys to like a, a choke point or something like that. Can you can you explain that? Well, again? the bad call was we we moved through the city on the outskirts, the western side, 
to move to another. There was another ODA that was uh, on the other side of the city. They were kind of helping us out. They were more of a direct direct action element. <clears throat> so we went there to resupply those guys and just to check in and, you know, road time and hang out and maybe drink a couple beers, whatever. Um, and they were on the really hot side of, they weren't far from that bridge. Those blackwater guys get hung from. So I took my, um, SR 25 with, with their team sniper, me and my buddy went up to the roof and he was kind of giving us the, the kind of the sit rep of the situation there. And they were, they were doing counter sniping up there all day long. And man, we were able to, uh, take part in that. Cause there, there was no like slow time in that city, especially that part of the city where these guys were, they were taking fire from, you know, around the, the city, that portion they were in quite a bit. So we were able to get some on the job training, which was pretty awesome. Um, anyways, getting back to the whole point of this story was, uh, team sergeant decided, Hey, we're going back. We're taking the same route we drove in. It's broad daylight. We rolled in in our gun GMVs, all kitted up, you know, big green machine. And <laughs> bro, less than, what was it? Less than a mile from that team's house, we, we got hit, man. And I, I went through that story the first time. You know, I saw the RPG miss the first vehicle, and then I start, started seeing Tracer Fire firing across the front of my hood or in, in front of me on the hood. And yeah, that was that was the ones where the Marines got scratched up and they ended up, get, uh, ended up getting Purple Hearts. We lost the Iraqi uh, leadership that rolled with us. Yeah, okay. They got mortared. I got mortared. My my truck got mortared. We were okay. <clears throat> so the bad call on his part was to take the same route out that yeah, you guys same took route. in. That's that's like tactics one hundred and one, man. In, in mounted mounted, you know, operations. Uh, you don't take the same routes out as you took the same routes in, especially in a like a an environment like that where people are watching you constantly. Right, the insurgents are, are watching you guys and probably laying IEDs, hoping that you guys would take the same route uh, back there. Yeah, exactly. I, we're lucky we didn't hit any IEDs, honestly, because that would have that would have been catastrophic. You know, that would have been different different ending for I think some of us. Right. <clears throat> You mentioned you were doing sniper work. Had you gone to sniper school after your first deployment? Uh, yeah, it was it was just a group level one, but yeah, the SOTIC course. Oh, because there's different levels of the sniper school uh, certification. Yes. Okay. So when you you got back from your second deployment, and then did you? Were you preparing for selection or did you yep. go straight into it uh, right after getting back? No, I, I mean, you know, we were doing PT anyway, so I just, you know, maximized my time, man, and just focused on what I need, excuse me, on what I needed to focus on to condition myself to get ready for, for uh, selection. Okay. So you go to selection again and this time you pass. Yep. So a lot of the you know, information about that selection is classified, but some yep. things uh, have come out over the years. Um, and one of the things that has come out is about you know going long distances with a, a heavy rucksack on your back. When you washed out the first time, was that the part that you had trouble with? 
Uh, there's a phase in, in, uh, uh, towards the end where you're, you're kind of being evaluated at that point where time standards are important and, uh, about the, can't really say the length of time that was, but on the fourth day, which was closer to the end of that portion, uh, I did not make the time standard and I got pulled out the second time I made it through everything. No, I okay. get pulled out. I, I, apparently, I made the time standard somehow. So, yep. Okay. So after you finish the the sort of physical, uh, the endurance part, then you go on to the operator training course, uh, OTC, and that's where you learn the shooting and and all the other skills that are necessary for that job. Um, what what was the difference? You know, how did you feel coming from special forces and then making it to that level of uh, proficiency? Uh, it was, it was interesting cause you're, you're always under the microscope. I've never been so, you know, heavily, uh, scrutinized or looked at, um, as you are there. It wasn't, I won't say it's easy. It's not easy at all. Um, there's parts of it that were easier for some than others. Uh, shooting evals are definitely difficult. You had to be on your game and you had to practice. You had to do a lot of dry fire. You had to do a lot of training on your own time, you know, on the weekends or after work or whatever, just to kind of be, to get the levels of repetition that you needed to, to kind of ace some of those evals. Um, you know, there's different phases of it. Some are easier than others. Like CQB is the big one that fuck, that gets a lot of guys. That's where your heaviest attrition rate is. Um, but then there's other parts that are not as hard, like, um, you know, patrolling and, uh, you know, kind of small unit tactics, that kind of stuff. That's more like a refresher, not, not so hard. Right. Because those kind of tactics, uh, don't really change, you know, regardless of the unit. Right. Yep. So, so in the, the CQB portion, uh, where a lot of guys or most guys are, are flunking out. Is that in the the shoot house and you know doing uh, hostage rescue yeah, type of training? Yeah, that's pretty much the primary focus. As you're learning, uh, C, you know, CQB in a in a high stress environment. You know, there's a lot of variables that are looked at, and and you know, your shooting, your marksmanship, you know, on targets, your decision making in rooms, your ability to maneuver as a team through a house, your leadership. If you're a leadership, you're you know, if you're selected to be a leader on that day, all that stuff's constantly being looked at, scrutinized, you're counseled like weekly on what you did right, what you did wrong, what you need to work on. And uh, like I said, that's the big one that gets a lot of guys. It, and it comes down to character and uh, personality. You know, you always hear um, when people talk about CQB, the three buzzwords is speed, surprise, violence of action, right? And I think we've talked about mindset in the past and violence of action is a pure mindset and if you don't show up with it on that day you, you need to but if you don't you know you're probably not the guy they're looking for and you know you'll be asked to either you know thanks for showing up have a nice day maybe you come back and try again or something like that but you know it's not for everybody people handle stress in different ways um and there's a lot of stress involved during that phase Okay, so you complete the operator training course, uh, and then from that point, 
is there a period where you just kind of, you know, get familiar with your surroundings or are you straight into a team and, and on a job? Oh, no, you go straight, straight across to a team. Um, and then you start training with your team, working on team SOPs and just becoming familiar with everybody and how, how everybody's personalities are. And, you know, and personality is a huge part of special operations, it's very personality driven business. Um, you know, and some personalities clash, some get along great, some form lifelong bonds and just, you know, luck of the draw who you end up with. And sometimes that can make or break guys, you know, they just don't have the right personality when they get to their team or their squadron. And, and that gets found out. So when you first get to your new team, uh, is there a point where it's like now you're at the tier one level? Do you feel the difference right away from that to uh, special forces? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's day one. That's not even when you go to the squad. And that's like day one when you show up, like what a difference that see. is. Oh, yeah. It's it's the base. It's the best dang place to be in the military in my honest opinion there's no else right. better okay so now um so now you're at the special missions unit uh the army's premier uh counterterrorism direct action unit um you guys are also known for hostage rescue um in special forces there are this direct action element um maybe even hostage rescue. Uh, primarily, it's, you know, working with local forces, building them up, you know, maybe some special reconnaissance roles. Um, how did that difference feel for you once you're in the job and deploying and fighting as a tier one guy? Um, it was it was different. It was definitely a, a, a change of pace for me. Um, ODAs are a little more laid back, a little more casual about stuff. And then I went to a team. I'm the new guy on a, on a assault team, on an assault troop. And it's balls to the wall. And you're, you're still scrutinized constantly, every little thing you do. Uh, and you hear about it, right? They make no, make no mistake. They let you know when you fuck something up because you're the new guy. And, um, uh, God, what was I going to say? I was going to say something else, but it's uh it's definitely different it's it's i mean it's stressful but once you're there um you realize you're part of the best goddamn place in the world uh for that type of work and that's kind of reassuring in itself <clears throat> although you can't let it get to your head right you can't get a big ego i'm like yeah i'm i'm here now now what because like i said you're the new guy and you're always being scrutinized you always hear that saying or you, i'm sure you've heard that saying uh, selection is an ongoing process, right? And that's absolutely true because I've seen guys go to squadron from my class over the years that have been fired or sent, you know, back to SF or Ranger Battalion or wherever because they fucked something up. Even after being in a squadron for four years, I've seen guys get fired for something they screwed up or a bad decision. And, you know, it just wasn't in, in the standards of, of conduct for, for a unit operator. So it's, it's, it's awesome. Like, I don't want to sound doomsday about it, but it, that's how it is, man. Like you're, you're always being scrutinized. 
Right. You know what I mean? You can't let it get to your head. You got to be humble. And there's guys that do that, let it get to their head. And they sometimes are those little ones that end up leaving. So, so it's not a situation where you make it in and it's like, okay, I'm here. Uh, you exactly. have to prove yourself every day and, and maintain that standard. Yeah, you got to continue. You got to maintain standards and continue to perform. If you're not performing, you get reevaluated every uh, a certain number of, of years to whether you're allowed to stay or if you get put on orders to go somewhere else. And you have to maintain, like I said, a performance level. And if you're not, you'll you'll not be allowed to to stay. How long were you in special forces before you went to the SMU? Um, five years. Okay. Five years. I know yeah. And yeah. how old were you when you got to the SMU? Oh, uh, let me see. That was So I was 33. Sorry, I'm not good at math. <laughs> so as I understand it, um, the average age of the operators at the special missions unit it's usually guys in their thirties, uh, career soldiers. Um, at least for the army, I, I believe it's similar for the Navy. Was that your experience at that unit? Don't, that's at the team level. That's guys that are already on a team. So guys that go, okay. uh, go to OTC. No, it's, it's, it's probably younger. Cause you got a lot of younger Rangers, you know, you'll get an army, you're right. getting uh, a Ranger lot of go there after doing like a four year stint in Ranger regiment. So he'll be, you know, what's that, 21, 22? Uh, actually, I don't think we had anyone that young. I think my class, Aaron Greider, was the youngest. I think he was 24. But he had some time in the 82nd before he was a Ranger. So he would have been younger than that. Um, so you're looking at like 23, 24-year-old guys, uh, potentially, if they have the maturity and they, they make the standard, versus like Special Forces guys which at my time we were older because we didn't have the um, sign up off the street and become an SF guy, right? The, the SF babies, they didn't have that program yet, which they do now. <laughs> so it was older guys. It was guys in their 30s. You know, I think right. I, I wasn't the oldest. Uh, a buddy of mine, Keith, he was the oldest, but he was kind of a, an anomaly. He was a Marine. And he had gone through selection years before that. Um, and then finally the Marines let him go. Uh, he had worked with the Army a lot. He was an instructor down at 4th RTB uh, as an RI, Ranger instructor. So he had a lot of experience working in the Army soft as a Marine Force Recon guy. He was the oldest. He hit his 40th birthday in OTC, which was – he was a fucking wow. freak of nature, Keith. He was, That's crazy. he was a phenomenal athlete. You watch that guy in the gym, it's like watching an old guy in the gym like – with the light dumbbells and taking his time. And like, he wasn't like an animal in the gym, but that dude was a freaking nature. He was like a genetic specimen, I guess. Cause he had at the age of 39, the fastest obstacle course time in my class. And we had 24, 25 year old Rangers, you know what I'm saying? They're running like, you know, 11 minute, two miles running that O course. Right. And he was beating them at 39 years old. So that's, that's great. Yeah. <clears throat> so at that level you guys are the best in the army and cons widely considered by many the best in the world I'll back that up 
what's unique about it is it's open, selection is open to all the services. Um, so, you know, you hear stories of Marines and uh, even heard a story of a Navy SEAL becoming an operator at the unit. Um, but I guess the majority of the personnel is selected from the Ranger Regiment, and then probably after that is uh, Special Forces. And then online you see things like, what's the difference between the unit and uh, SEAL Team 6? And I guess the, ma the majority of the difference is the vast majority of the operators at SEAL Team 6 are prior SEALs uh, yep. versus at the unit. Uh, there's a mixed bag, probably mostly Rangers and Green Berets, but it's still a mixed bag. And I think that creates uh, a different environment and culture uh, within the unit itself. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. We had, I don't want to say 50 50 because it varied from squadron to squadron, but you probably had close to, you know, it was probably like, we'll say 48% Ranger Regiment guys, then maybe like 47, 48% Green Berets. And then you had a couple that were, 82nd or you know 173rd or they were Lurs guys or something like that uh guys that that went to selection and made it but the normal split is you know sf for the majority and rangers and it's normally it's it's not 50 50 like i said it varies from day to day or which squadron you're in but that's the predominantly that's the recruiting pool that most guys come from right so essentially uh, that unit is made up of prior service combat veterans, uh, special ops guys, uh, infantry, um, and then you you know you make it through selection and you go to the the next level of uh, operating. Um, so over the years, you guys are fighting the enemy. They adapt their tactics based on your tactics. And then in turn, you guys have to adapt and, and change to their tactics. Um, can you explain some yeah. of that? Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of, I was kind of in the middle of that, which was, it was a, it was a weird time, but it was interesting time because the TTPs did evolve because of casualties, right. And who we were going after and what they were doing. So, you know, the ID or, or booby trap explosive device, whatever you want to call it became al-qaeda's number one you know weapon of choice to fight americans and they could figure out because you know the ones that w weren't you know kill capture missions the ones that were captured we take them back they get detained they get questioned you know whatever process happens on that end they end up some of them back out there and they would just kind of share the information right it's intel collection just on their side just like it is on our side so they would talk about, hey, these guys will hit at this time, you know, they, you know, track cell phones, so don't use your cell phones or, you know, whatever. Oh, and they like to come in, you know, the front door and the back door. So, you know, put pressure plates at these locations and make sure you don't use those entrances when you go in and out of the building. And so, you know, we were, we were doing hard assaults, hard hits, where we were just going in, you know, blowing up doors, going in and you know, looking for the target, whoever the target individual was, the HVI. Um, and then they were starting to rig booby traps, pressure plates at doorways and stuff like that. And guys were getting killed or, or wounded badly. Uh, they were also wiring themselves up with suicide vests. That was another big one um, that they used to get a, 
a little bit of an advantage on us, right? They would draw us in. <clears throat> um, they probably knew about ISR at some point. I'm sure they figured that out and they would do stuff and, you know, we, they'd meet certain triggers. We would go after them and lo and behold, there's a dude with a suicide vest. Um, and that, that was a heavy casualty producing weapon. Um, so then we, we kind of had to figure out, Hey, how can we go hit these guys and not, you know, without such a big risk to mitigate the risk of the force. And that's when that, the call out kind of came about, I guess that was around Oh four or four Oh five timeframe. Like I said, I was new and I was just, we were doing it. Sometimes we did it. Sometimes we didn't, but it was relatively new TTP call outs where we'd have an interpreter. We'd initiate with some kind of noise producing thing, like a flashbang, you know, and be like, Hey, this is us forces with a megaphone. We're here to, you know, talk to you. We want to look at your house and we need everyone to come out the front door with their hands in the air and, you know, something like that, the verbiage, wherever the verbiage was. And we would take whoever would walk out the front door, men, women, children, we'd separate them in, in different, you know, piles away from each other. So they couldn't talk. We would blindfold them. We would uh, put little flex cuffs on them or zip ties on them. And we'd kind of sit them down, wait for them to come out, talk to them. And then we would ask one of them, hey, is everybody out of the house? How many people were in the house? And depending on what they'd tell us, you know, whether it was true or not, then we'd make a decision. All right, we're going to go actually clear this target. And that's right around the time we started using dogs more, right, more so canines with camera systems so we'd send the dog in look for any changes of behavior with the camera on his back call the dog back out and then we you know we do an assault just like we would if we hadn't done the call out and clear the all the rooms in the building and call the target secure you know and then we would find some some targets you know you have a a very mix of people you have people that are deaf handicapped mentally or physically uh you have people that just were unwilling to come out you know, you had a wide variety, so you still couldn't go in there like guns a blazing. You still had to use good discipline, good decisions, good uh, target discrimination because there was, you know, mentally disabled or, you know, deaf people or elderly people or whatever. Um, and that was a great that was a great tool for us because our numbers, our casualties declined significantly after that. Um, yeah. And that was a big one because the rest of the. All the, you know, direct action forces, if you will, like infantry units, SEALs, Rangers, whoever, they all kind of adopted the call-out. Now everybody's doing them. You know, guys in the 82nd Airborne are doing call-outs. Um, and they have been for years. I mean, this isn't anything new. It's been around, fuck, I don't know, 15 years, something like that, whatever it's been, 20 years. You mentioned speed, surprise, and violence of action, um, and that looked like breaching a door, throwing a flashbang in and guys are rushing into the room and, um, you know, shooting if they have to shoot or whatever. Uh, so then the enemy adapts to that and now they are booby trapping doors. They are barricading shooters, uh, inside rooms waiting for operators to come in. Uh, did that change in, in tactics slow down the, the pace of you guys taking down a, a target building? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, it's way more slow and way more methodical. 
you know, you're using more like uh, the combat clearance mentality where you're kind of, you're blacked out. You're not using white lights, at least not initially. And you're kind of, you know, peeking around corners and pying off windows and doorways and, you know, trying to clear as much of a room inside before actually walking bodies into it to clear it physically. Um, so it was definitely a lot more slower and a lot more time consuming. And those targets took a lot longer to, to prosecute and, you know, be complete for exfil. So, but I mean, you know, it's all about going home at the end of the day, right? It's like, right. we don't need to rush in there to be in a rush to go die because that's kind of what we were doing initially. I listened to a podcast recently with a retired Team 6 SEAL, and he basically spoke about that and, and was talking about how they decided to slow things down. And the idea was to not rush to your death and, and how he would teach the new guys coming onto the team, like, don't rush yep. to your death. We'll take this target down anyway. Yeah. Exactly. And I still do that now. Like I'm a contractor. So I, I work, I work, uh, in, in SOCOM and I manage a program that that's tactics. And that's one of my areas of focus is, uh, CQB. And I, I'll tell the new guys, man, like place emphasis on that. It's, it's the force protection measures are the emphasis, right? You're not doing hostage rescue. You're not rushing in there to save Americans. You're going in there for a guy who builds IEDs or a guy who funds, a terrorist cell or whatever, like don't be in a rush to go in there to, to, you know, eat an IED or get burned down in a doorway by a machine gun. And we'd escalate with all the tools we had in our kit bags, you know, noise makers and, you know, flashing devices. And we give them a chance. We would say, we give them the chance to vote. They can either come out and kind of be cooperative or they can, hunker down in there and eventually they're going to die because we're going to escalate using everything we have and and not expose ourselves when we don't need to so being a medic prior to joining the unit uh, being an 18 delta uh, when you're there uh, at the unit are you expected to cover things in a medical capacity or are you an operator shooter sniper uh, who has the ability to take care of somebody if things get bad so as an operator, that was my primary job. But because I was an 18 Delta by, by trade, my MOS, um, I maintained my credentials and they allowed me every couple of years to go recertify to get my paramedic credentials and my, you know, all, all the other ones that I had. Um, and you were kind of a, just in case like a mass cal mass casualty event, which actually happened on a couple targets for us where we took some casualties, um, you know, the, the lead element walking out got ambushed by machine gun fire. That was a night Aaron Grider, you, you know him, right? Aaron yeah. Grider and Bodie got shot. Aaron died that night. Bodie lived to go on another deployment after that. But that night stands out in my mind <clears throat> um, because, you know, I lost a really good buddy of mine, an OTC classmate. But, um, so we had that lead element. They took three or four uh, casualties. They weren't all catastrophic, right? Iron was pretty bad, but there was a couple other guys. One was shot uh, in the thigh and in a forearm. Another one was shot in the hand, I think, or maybe as a calf. So they had a little more superficial, but they were still bleeding. So they needed more medics because we had one troop medic, one, you know, 
dedicated medic and that's all he did a direct support guy so they're like hey you know fred we need your help so i went and worked on one of my buddies on that that lead team while the actual medic was working on aaron uh and then a couple of a couple other 18 deltas uh, assaulters were also working on some of the other guys so we all had to kind of pull in and help each other out but you know it's nice to have that ability did I carry a ma- an aid bag? No, I carried a standard um, IFAC or a blowout kit that you know for myself. Um, so the guy I worked on, Chad, he had a, an IFAC on him. I just worked on him. With, so, you, so you use his? I right. used his. So yeah. So no, I did not carry any additional medical gear besides my own individual kit. One of the primary roles of the American Special Mission Units is hostage rescue. Uh, it dictates the training that you guys do, the target discrimination, yeah. shooting a guy with a gun, not shooting uh, an innocent person or a hostage. Um, have you ever worked in that capacity where you were on for uh, hostage rescue? And then can you also talk about um, the difference in going on a killer capture operation where you know these bad guys are in this building versus going into a building to rescue an American. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, yes. To the first question I did. Um, there was actually several, uh, incidences or events, crisis, whatever you want to call it, that where there was hostage situations that a lot of us went on. A lot of, a lot of it was because of the war, right? You had contractors and, so forth that we're getting captured and detained or held for ransom or threatened to, you know, threaten their lives, you know, to, to get us forces out or whatever the case was. But yeah, there's a few, um, a lot of them went down. Uh, you, you'll never hear about them cause they were just, you know, they just went down smoothly. Everything was good. Everybody was returned home. Um, so there's two timelines that you work on. It doesn't matter what the CQB, CQB is CQB. You still have fundamentals you use. Yes, you adapt some of it, but there's two timelines, right? You have the bad guys timeline where it's a hostage rescue and you're there to save Americans or whoever the hostages are or whoever the captives are. And you don't have time and you don't, you don't have the ability or the luxury to, to, to use all your, your tools and your efforts. You can't escalate like you can with, if it's just a bunkered in or a um, barricaded in shooter or terrorist, that's, you know, whatever reason, maybe he's a leadership of a, of an ID cell or something like that. And it's a kill capture mission where you can take all the time you need all night long and escalate as you need to. You give them a chance to vote. Like I said, you wake them up with a, a noisemaker, you give them a fair warning in his language. Hey, U.S. forces here. We need you to come on out with your hands up. We want to talk to you and ask you some questions. And then they vote. Hey, yep, here I am. I'm coming out. Don't shoot me. Or no, nope, I'm going to hunker down. I'm going to pull my, put on my suicide vest on, grab my AK, get the cachet out and get it on. You know, just it depends on them. It's their chance to vote. And it's, it all comes down to the timeline. Are we on our timeline or are we on the bad guy's timeline, i.e. the hostage 
holders timeline and he's going to start executing people. So we just need to get in there with a fucking quickly thrown together emergency assault plan and go rescue those people. So on a hostage rescue, you guys are essentially uh, taking more of a risk in uh, attempting to recover this person. Yeah. So, and that's kind of the, uh, you know, I mentioned force protection, the, uh, the kill capture side where force protection is more of the focus. Hostage rescue is absolutely not. You're the sacrificial assaulter. You're there for one reason, to get that American home. And, you know, I had a sergeant major that would tell us, hey, that's why we buy you guys the level four plates. Get in that room, take it down, and find those Americans or, or whoever the, the hostage is, not necessarily Americans, but you know what I'm saying, uh, where yeah. you're not worried about your, your own welfare worried about grabbing those those people you're there to get out of there and get them exiled out right um okay have you worked with um, allied special operations units or even uh, other special operations units uh, from the united states heck yeah those are like the best um Working with the foreign, you know, counterterrorist units, the, the partner units, that's always fun because um, it's, it's kind of brings me back to the SF time and working with foreign units and stuff like that. Um, and there's usually a lot of drinking involved, which is always fun at the end, right? Especially when they're Europeans. Those, those guys love to throw it down. But, um, yeah, I work with uh, the 2-2 in the UK, the 2-2 SAS guys. We work with those. We had an exchange program with them. Like routinely, we work with those guys. They would right. send operators over to us, or vice versa. Um, and it's a trip watching there, learning from those guys, watching how they do business as opposed to how we do it. Because a lot of our right. initial, you know, when they started this place, a lot of their foundation was used to to build ours. Um, so it's right. the cultural lines parallel. It's very interesting to listen to unit guys talk to you, two two guys. Because there's a lot of similarities there. Um, I've worked with another one of my favorites is the SASR down in Australia, the Aussies. Australians. Yeah, yeah. those are some good MFers, man. Those are some great dudes. I did a lot of canine stuff with with some of those guys, and they're a lot of fun to to hang out with. And boy, they like drinking also. Yeah. Um, Polish Grom. Probably my, those are my top three, like as far as favorites, uh, the Polish guys, they're great dudes. They, they've come over here and worked with us. We've taken them on targets, um, and vice versa. Right after I retired, my squadron did a huge, um, event over in Poland. I was so pissed off cause I had just retired and I had buddies tell me about it, man. But you got to work with those guys, got to work with, um, other countries too, like, um, let me think a lot of South American countries, uh, a lot of European countries, the German KSK, the, uh, uh, Scandinavians, some Norwegians, um, whole bunch. Those are always fun, man. Cause you know, the cultural exchange, right. And like I said, the drinking and the stories and seeing the similarities or seeing how, you know, or even just the, the, the verbiage you use, like when guys, you know, like when Brits talk about, 
you know, smoking cigarettes or, you know, they say, Hey, can I bum a fag? And it's like, yeah. Wait, what? What'd you just say? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> so it, it's, it's fun, man. Working with foreign units. It's always a good time. You know, you learn a lot uh, lessons learned from them and, uh, they learn from us as well. In fact, we had, we were co-located in Iraq for a while with the, uh, with the UK guys with the two, two, and we had, right. you know, a partner for us. We'd take out with us. Um, and we'd go out with them guys sometimes. It was, it was pretty cool. Cool time. You mentioned earlier about, uh, suicide vest and, um, uh, enemies are now introducing that tactic on their end. Uh, do you have yeah. any direct experience where you guys are hitting a target and uh, guys are wearing S vest? Yes, sir. Um, was I in super close proximity? Luckily, no. Um, I will tell you that I was really close a couple times, um, but. A lot of times, usually it was squirters. Yeah, you know what a squirter is, yeah? Yeah. So I'll just explain it, explain it for this. Okay. So you get a squirter on a target. You, you land on a, on a helicopter. You land on the target. Guys hear the noise. Some of them leave. Maybe they run off into the woods behind their houses or whatever. Or they run to a neighbor's house. We call those squirters, and we usually watch them with ISR. <clears throat> and a lot of times they can talk us into where those guys are hiding. But – um. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll send out a small element to go, a uh, squirter element to go control that, and they'll take canine with them. And there's been a couple times where I was on that, that small element to go search, and them dogs, man, them noses, like the olfactory systems in the dogs is, is phenomenal. You know, we get the dog downwind, send the dog into the scent cone, blowing down, down the, you know, come downwind, and that dog just hones in like radar, man. Um, and they'll, they'll find them. And a lot of times, unfortunately, that's how we lost most of our dogs was suicide vest, uh, body bombers hiding, hiding in tall grass or bushes, dog engaging them and then them clacking themselves off. But that was the whole point was I was in mm. close proximity, but because the dogs acted so quickly, man, like I am literally sitting wow. here talking to you right now because of several of those dogs. And that was more than, you know, a couple occasions that happened to me personally. And I know plenty of other operators that were in the same same boat, you know. So, yes. But I wasn't close enough. You know, you hear guys tell stories like, yeah, I had, you know, I took some fragmentation from, from body parts from a suicide yes. bomber. That was, thank God that was not me. Because I know some guys that are, you know, probably fucked up for the rest of their lives because they had splinters of bone or teeth or skull or whatever embedded in them being that close to a suicide bomber. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. That's fucking crazy, man. I had uh, read a story about a uh, British SBS, a special boat service, and for the audience, the SBS are the UK's counterpart to SEAL Team 6, and I think it was Iraq, and they were assaulting a house and then uh, guys ran out of the house directly at them wearing suicide vest. And in order for them to safely uh, continue to prosecute the target, they were headshotting guys running at them in S vests. It's pretty fucking crazy. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, there's a lot of dudes with a lot of 
trauma and injuries from from suicide bombers either by proximity by fragmentation or just just the blast you know in general the energy from the blast um you know i've been close to a lot of explosions so i have tbis as well from being really close to a lot of explosions but luckily for me it wasn't none of those were like close proximity to suicide bombers because that's just it's it's just disgusting man like hearing some of those stories like geez Ugh, you can't shower that shit off of you, you know? you know. Just even thinking about, uh, you know, fighting an enemy that's willing to kill themselves so that they can kill you is, is pretty crazy. Yeah, they're they're pretty extreme, those guys, man. Pretty extreme. So you joined the unit and you were 33 years old. Yeah. How long did you stay at the unit? How long? Yeah, how long did you did you stay? Eight years. Okay. And the deployments are shorter as well at the uh, SMU. Yeah, they were shorter. They were real short when I first got there, and then the op tempo kind of increased, and that was when the surge, around the time of the surge for Afghanistan, the big push, and then we started doing longer trips and more frequent. Like we do, like and this wasn't routine, but we would do like four months on four months off and then four months on again. And we did that a few times. And those are some, <laughs> those are some tough times on the guy, you know, guys, family lives and stuff like that. Just being gone all the time. That kind of sucks, you know, but then that kind of leveled out. It kind of stabilized. And then it was kind of back to a, a more routine right, right. deployment cycle. <clears throat> so as the wars went on, um, Delta Force was assigned to Iraq, and SEAL Team 6 was assigned to Afghanistan uh, primarily. Uh, did you have any trips uh, into Afghanistan? Yes, I did. Uh, towards the end of my time, so I mentioned that, that surge, right, the Afghan surge. So I think it was 2009, we were completely done with Iraq. We left. That was my last trip there. And then the focus was Afghanistan helping out there because, you know, things were bad. And that's when this, the surge happened. And, yeah, I was doing trips to Afghanistan, did a couple of those. And then, uh, and then I retired shortly after that. So, so your last <laughs> combat experience was in Afghanistan? Yes. <laughs> yeah. For as far as public knowledge, yes. My last trip was uh, Afghanistan. <laughs> Um, as far as the operational environments, uh, was there a big difference in fighting in Iraq versus fighting in Afghanistan for you guys? Um, so for us, the day-to-day ops stuff was, it was, it was kind of the same and it, it was a lot of it was regional, you know, what part of the country. So I was up in Kunduz for a while. That was my last rotation. And that was, that was a bit of a hornet's nest, that Northeastern portion of the country, um, but I mean, we were still going out every night. Sometimes there were follow-on targets. Um, that, that night Aaron Greider was killed. That was a follow-on target because we had made a shitload of noise in a, in a village way out, like in the middle of nowhere. I think it was east of Kondus, but it was a very consolidated village. It was a big village all walled in, you know, the big walls on the sides of the streets. And we had made a shitload of noise. Uh, on one side and then we literally went to a follow-on based off of some some bit some some questions we did on a some detainees that drove us to a nearby 
building, a relative's building. And while moving to that building, we were ambushed uh, in an alleyway. And that's when, when Aaron was killed. And we never, we never hit that fall on target, obviously, because we took, you know, we had a mass cal thing. Like I said, that whole lead element, they, they took some machine gun fire. Uh, and we had, I think it was three, three or four casualties. Some of them weren't too bad, but, you know, Aaron was horrible. He was in horrible shape. Um, so we kind of pulled back. We called in cast, and I think AC-130 kind of rocked that, sh- you know, kind of kind of did it in, and we just exfilled. We, they exfilled, they Kazovac Aaron before our exfil, and then they exfilled us. But, um, yeah, it was, the op tempo was every night. We were going out every night. There might have been one or two nights in a month that we didn't go out after a target, but it was almost every night we were going out. And like I said, sometimes twice a night if there was follow-ons. You know, being the uh, the unit that you guys were in, Typically, you guys are helicoptering to a target. Um, but in Afghanistan, you know, the terrain is very mountainous. Uh, did you have to deal with, like, climbing, you know, mountains to get over to a target? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, sometimes, it, like I said, a lot of that stuff's regional. Like, the guys in the east and the southeast, they, they, were, they were doing a lot of mountain, mountainous stuff. Up, up okay. north where I was, near Mez. And Kunduz, it wasn't too horrible. Uh, Mez is Mazari Sharif in, you know, Kunduz. Now, the northeastern portion, uh, northeast of Kunduz, there was some some good bit of uh, bad terrain, some some uh, mountains. So there was a couple times we did kind of do do some walking through some mountains and have to go through passes. And, you know, that always sucks. But generally, we're doing uh, helicopter, you know, half to a target. We'd offset and we'd walk in. And it was generally, I don't want to say flat, but it wasn't horrible terrain. It, it, we were just the luck of the draw, man. It was that part of the country we were in. I see. Because, okay. like, the, the, the dev group guys, you know, they had they were in the more mountainous areas down south and east. And they, those motherfuckers, <laughs> they were doing some horrible horrible terrain movements offsets through mountains and shit it was it was ugly i used to talk to them about it in some horrible stories but yeah that's why i asked uh, you know interviewing seals and talking to seals you hear some of those stories um so as far as um the difference in the enemy between uh, afghanistan and iraq did you notice a, a difference in the guys you were fighting with most definitely man the so like the Sunni, uh, Arab, you know, culture, they're a little more laid back. They're not, you know, I hate to generalize, man, but I'm, I'm just going to tell it like I saw it. Um, you know, they weren't really super dedicated fighters. Now, don't get me wrong. You had foreign fighters, the jihadis that would come from other countries that would want to get it on. But as far as like the Iraqi populace, they weren't known to be super hard fighters. Um, now, in Afghanistan, you know, you have the Mujahideen who's been there, some of them since the Russians, and they fought the Russians and, you know, got Russians out of there. And those guys are hard fighters, man, especially I call them the mountain goat fighters, man, the mountain goat jihadis. Those, those fuckers, they can fucking fire and maneuver in that terrain, and they know it like the back of their hand. You know, you're at a disadvantage. We are at a disadvantage when we're fighting those guys because of that, that familiarity with the terrain and just their conditioning they're you know, they're a lot lighter than we are. 
they're wearing a lot less shit and they know the terrain. So they're definitely more challenging to fight uh, in a, in a infantry sense, you know, now we have the technology and the smart bombs and the cast and, you know, satellites and ISR. So that's a great advantage and not to mention, you know, IR capability, right? Night vision. So it, it's still tough though. There's still hard fighting out, out there in some of those areas, but Afghans are definitely harder fighters than Iraqis overall. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're just harder people uh, living in an environment uh, like Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, they've been at war fucking on and off forever, as long as they've, right. you know, been a civilization, you know? Right, going back, back hundreds of years. You, you yeah. Know, yeah. During, like, Genghis Khan, like, those motherfuckers have been fighting forever. Right. <clears throat> I think people who pay attention to those wars peripherally or... People who are critical of those wars are, you know, say things like, oh, they're just out there fighting farmers and whatnot, not really understanding that some of these guys are, are battle-hardened uh, fighters with, with good tactics. No, not the case. And then you would have, you know, there's a foreign fighter side to that as well, you know, from Pakistan, coming from, from the, the Pakistan side. So right, right. those guys are even more hardcore, a lot of them certain cells that were training on that side and, and moving in. So, yeah, man, definitely some tough fighters out there. You know, talking about the Pakistanis, you know, even though they are across the border uh, from Afghanistan, those people are very similar to the tribal groups in Afghanistan anyway. Yeah. Yep. The Pashtun, Pashtun people. Yep. Oh, so even the, the Pakistanis are also Pashtun. Yep, they speak it, and there's a lot of Pashtuns. That's where the Pashtuns came. A lot of the, in the Afghanistan, the Pashtuns that are there originally came over from the Pakistan side. I see. They're the same people. Yeah, so a lot of your Persians, if you go back, um, you know, you have Dari, right? Dari mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Pashtu, which are the two primary languages. The Dari speakers, that's Persian. That's a Persian language, uh, a right. dialect. It's just like Farsi. Right. Similar, but not quite the same. Where the Pashtuns are more, <clears throat> you know, they're from the Pakistan side. And, um, yeah, it's a big, that's kind of the primary split, I guess, of Afghanistan. I mean, you have others too, but you have Uzbeks and Tajiks and, you know, all that. But those are the primary, kind of like in Iraq, you get the Sunni and the Shia, you know. Yeah. What was a perfect day on a job for you? Perfect day on the job? Ugh, that's a hard one. <laughs> so like a typical training day, I guess, go in the morning, do PT, you know, six, whatever. And then eight o'clock, first range, for, on, the, on the range, first rounds are down range, uh, train till about, I don't know, 1030 or so, go hit the gym, get a quick one in before lunch, go eat lunch, and then 1300, you're in the shoot house, rounds, rounds being slung in the shoot house, and then you go to about whenever, whenever the training was done for that afternoon and then, um, go home for the day or those were, those were always good days. That was kind of more of a routine week. If, if nothing crazy was going on or like a jump trip or like a team trip, like you're doing more specialty stuff, you know, you're jumping all week, you're working on your night jumps, you're working on your hey-ho stuff, your combat equipment. Um, you do that all week or like a team trip. Those are always really fun, you know, mountaineering or, 
uh, you know, maritime stuff. I didn't do a ton of maritime stuff. I wasn't on a water team at, at the unit. I was on a climbing team, but <clears throat> both the teams and K9, but that's kind of its own thing. But um, a lot of climbing, right? That's always fun. Those team trips are really cool because you're going in really cool places. You're going to like Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and you're, you're, you're freaking snowshoeing and skiing and ice climbing. And, you know, it's a really cool life, man. I, I do miss it, but it's also high impact <laughs> right? and high risk. But it was fun, man. I love it. I miss it. You mentioned having TBIs. Um, were there any moments uh, in combat where you were seriously wounded or blown up, shot, anything like that? Most of my injuries sustained were by a accident. I don't remember if we even talked about that the first time we talked, but when I was a relatively new guy uh, in the unit, I got hit by a car. I was cycling. Ooh. I had, yeah. I had just, I was, I was getting a bike ready to do some triathlons. I just rebuilt my bike. I put some new parts on it. So I was doing a longer test ride. I rode into work for PT, which is like a 20 mile drive and then ride back home at the end of the day. <clears throat> and on the way in about halfway, I got smacked by a, I, I heard it was a Jeep. I don't know. So I had, um, I don't remember any of it. So wow. I had, um, bilateral subdural hematomas on my brain some some bleeding on both sides i had uh i fractured my pelvis i uh compression fractured all of my lumbar vertebrae right l1 2 3 4 5 i had some other broken bones like a foot uh some Jeez. ribs broke yeah i got pretty banged up man i was i was no shit in rehab and recovery for like a year before i was kind of back to normal full bore you know jumping and doing everything but um, that was while you were at the unit. Yeah. Yep. And then um, there was some smaller stuff. Like I had a really hard little bird landing. It wasn't a crash, but it was a really hard landing that I think they lost control. We caught some crosswind, really hard crosswind. They kind of slammed this thing down really hard and I had disconnected. I had gotten my, uh, my one minute call. So we were probably 30 feet up in the air. I disconnected so I could run off the bird. And then it started traveling sideways really fast. He slammed it down and bounced up in the air. I went flying. I was a fucking yard sale. My night vision goggles broke. My shit was there. All my kit was fucking all over Jeez. the place. It was ugly. Uh, so I, I had a concussion from that. My back was jacked up. I couldn't walk for like the next two days. And that was, I already had broke, broke my back before that. So it was, I probably just aggravated the injuries. Um, and was that in, in training or deployment? No, that was a that was a, a real hit. That was a wow. deployment. And then um, there was others. There's bad landings on jumps. Plenty of those. You know, I, I did five days of testing on a new reserve parachute deployment system, um, and we were ch testing this new rig out. So the landings weren't quite the same as the MJ shoots we were using the military javelins. This was the multi-mission parachute system MMPS. So was it, the landings were a little different for me, and I. <laughs> I, I hadn't mastered them. Uh, I, I hit like a fucking brick shit house every time I landed. Jeez. I didn't do any downwind landings. I landed landed the way I was supposed to. I just I don't know. I couldn't I couldn't figure out the speed in which to descend when I when I did my final approach. But um, got jacked up doing that, and then you know being dangerously dangerously close, a little too close to literally 
hundreds and hundreds of explosions, breaching charges and window charges and, you know, you name it. You know, it takes its toll being exposed to all that. Um, a lot of fighting, a lot of combative stuff, you know, getting knocked into the melon quite a bit. All little bits here and there, I guess. Did you have to go through any treatment or, you know, any of the protocols to deal with uh, some of those brain injuries? When I when I did the brain injury stuff, they did an initial before this happened in OTC, they did an initial brain assessment. They called it the TBI, I don't know, brain injury clinic assessment or something. And then I got injured and then, you know, I was seeing all these head docs and functional specialists and everything. And, you know, they, they wanted to, uh, kind of drill a hole in my skull and alleviate pressure. And they were like, Oh, we're not going to do that. We're going to wait. So I was getting like monthly CT scans on my brain to see how it was resolving. And eventually the, their hematoma was, you know, absorbed and they went away <clears throat> after that. Then it was a lot of therapy, uh, with, cognitive specialists and stuff like that um i didn't really do any hardcore like treatments because there weren't really a lot back then Mm. till after i was retired like honestly i retired in 2012 and then i think 2014 there was this program green beret foundation was funding i think it was them i think they paid for mine anyways at in Fayetteville the the um hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber they were using that to treat tbis uh, because initially they were only using it for like burn injuries or dive injuries which is what it was created for but during research they were figuring out that by putting putting the the brain at depth right uh two atmospheres 66 feet at 100 percent o2 for X amount of time, I think you were at that level for an hour. It took 15 minutes to go down and then 15 minutes to come up. So you're, you're in the chamber for an hour and a half. But at that pressure, the I guess <clears throat> the oxygen molecules, they permeate the membranes into the, the uh, neural, you know, the brain tissue better or easier. So it actually promotes healing because they say once you damage brain or uh, spinal tissue, it, it doesn't like heal. I guess, but at that pressure with the 100% O2 being, you know, transferring through the membranes, I guess it works and it causes, it promotes healing. So I did that. I did like 40 dives and honestly, like I noticed a difference after the second trip. Um, I remember driving home, it was the fall and the colors in the trees looked so much more vivid after I wow. came out of there driving. Yeah, it was, it was bizarre. Like everything was really brightly colored and everything was just more, my senses were more vivid, I guess. And I did like 40 of those and it was noticeable, man. My memory improved, my cognitive skills improved. Um, it was pretty awesome. So, and that's like yeah, one treatment cool. they're doing now. And then they get all kinds of stuff. They're doing like magnetic resonance, tra- you know, stuff on the brain where they're shocking the brain with magnets. And yeah, I've heard, I've heard about that. Yeah. Doing all kinds of stuff. I haven't done any of that, but the hyperbaric oxygen stuff was, was pretty awesome. So was there a point uh, maybe at the end of your career before you retired where you were seeing and feeling the effects of uh, all those brain injuries? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
there was times like I remember there's this big traffic circle. Everybody that lives in Moore County, North Carolina knows it in Pinehurst. <laughs> and I remember coming home from the gym going to my house and I get in that traffic circle. That's a really big one. And I drive in there. I'm like, where the fuck was I going? Like I lose, like lose my thoughts of where I was going. Mm. I couldn't remember where I was going. And I drive in that traffic circle like two or three times before I remember, Oh yeah, I was going home to eat or take a shower or whatever. And like that happened all the time. That was kind of, you know, my, I guess my red flag was like, you know what? I probably need to start thinking about calling it a, a career yeah, <laughs> and yeah. not become a liability. I think I talked about that last time we talked. I just didn't want to be a liability because there's guys there that, you know, it, it's all ego, man. Like guys don't want to give it up. And, and I, I get it. Like I felt that way, but there's a time where you got to realize, you know, you're going to be an asset or a liability. And you just right. don't want to, you just don't want to do that. You know? Yeah. I'm sure that's tough. Uh, you know, it's a unique job and, uh, where everybody who's there really wants to be there. So I'm sure that's difficult. I mean, on this podcast alone, man, I, I think I lost my train of thought. Was it three times you had to remind me of what you were talking? Like right. I, I draw a blank. I'm like, fuck, what was I talking about, man? And that's improved. Like that's better now. You should have seen before. <laughs> it was pretty right, bad. Right. Yeah. And even, you know, aside from the actual combat where you're, in close proximity to suicide bombers or, or airstrikes, uh, just all the training that you guys are doing, um, shooting in confined spaces, um, setting off explosives in confined spaces. I mean, a few years ago, I was in um, Marietta, Georgia, near Atlanta, and I went to a shooting range. And the first day I went, we were shooting like pistol caliber guns. And then um, the next day we went back and then we started to shoot like 5.56 five, uh, rifles or whatever. So we were on the, it was an indoor range. And we were then on the 5.56 five, side was like a separate little area. And I was setting up my rifle. And then the guy next to me had like some kind of M4, you know, with a couple of cool gadgets on it. And um, he started shooting. And I just felt the booms, you know, like deep in my chest. And I was like, wow, holy shit. Like, yep. I could imagine, you know, all the years of doing that kind of stuff, you know, what that does uh, to the brain. Yeah, it does, man. Those are small little micro, micro concussing that happens to you, especially in confined space when that energy is confined and it just bounces off of the, you know, the space, the walls. Yeah. Uh, and it takes a toll. You do that thousands and thousands of times, man. And like. It does. It adds up. Flashbangs, you know, whatever. I know when you first got to the unit, you were working as an assaulter. And then towards the end of your time there, you were doing some work with canines. Um, in between that, uh, were you doing different jobs? Yeah, so you did time as an assaulter. Uh, you know, there's different paths. And without getting into specifics, the majority or the big, the big paths are assaulter, you know, sniper, canine. Uh, there's a couple other like that I'm not really you know wanting to talk about, but those are like the big three. Right. Uh, yeah, and I did those all. Canine was the least because I, <laughs> I, I guess I was injury prone because I tore my ACL actually doing uh, bite work with with some dogs in Virginia Beach with some some of those some of the seals. 
and that was a hell of a surgery and rehab for me. That was like another nine months. So, mm. um, and that, like I said, that was towards the end of my time. So if I wanted to retire on time, I needed to make sure I did my rehab and stuff. Like I could have went on other deployments and, you know, wrapped up my knee and sucked it up. But I was like, you know, now nah, I'm going to take care of this. Cause someday when I'm almost 50, like today, uh, I, you know, I'm going to be thankful I took care of those injuries when I did and not put them off because some of them I did put off and, you know, I, I'm paying for it today. So <clears throat> this was great, man. I'm, I'm glad that we finally did this. You know, we were kind of going back and forth for a while trying to figure out a, a time to do it. <laughs> yeah, it took a little while. Man. I apologize. I know you're busy. I was busy. But yeah, man, thanks for thanks for setting it up at a good time. man. I love love talking to you on here. So anytime. If anyone wants to check you out or keep up with you on social media, where can they do that? Yeah, so the biggest, I guess, advertising I do really, because it's free, is Instagram, right? I have an Instagram account, all lowercase letters, storm underscore tactical underscore consulting. Um, that's my Instagram. I also have Facebook. I don't do a lot on Facebook because Facebook's getting really weird. And um, I do have a free Wix site. So if you Google storm tactical consulting, you'll you'll find it. Um, I haven't been doing a ton of training lately. I actually took a full-time job as a, as a program manager over at JSOC at one of the units there, just because the training was getting, the market's so saturated now and it's, it's just getting harder to fill courses. Um, but I do do some stuff on the side occasionally. I've been getting hit up to do, put on some dates on the calendar. Um, but yeah, you know, people can follow that and I'll put posts up when I'm going to do a course or if I have updates, and uh, that's pretty much my primary means of communicating business eff efforts, I guess. Yeah, man. Anytime. Anytime you want to talk, hit me up. I'm glad we did it.